0: Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to the author of The School Reform Landscape, Fraud, Myth, and Lies. I hope that you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be speaking with uh, the author of The School Reform Landscape, Fraud, Myth, and Lies. The author is Chris Tyken. Um, uh, Chris, before we get started, did I mispronounce your name? It's pronounced Tinkin, yes, Chris Tinkin. Perfect. Chris, uh, I know you just a little bit. Uh, we are both at Seton Hall University, but maybe you can just briefly introduce yourself and, and a little bit more about your background. Sure, Heath.
1: I've been an assistant professor at Seton Hall University in the Department of Education Leadership Management and Policy for five years. Prior coming to Seton Hall, I was a public school elementary school teacher, uh, a middle school principal, an assistant superintendent, and I was also an adjunct professor at the Rutgers University Graduate School of Education.
0: Wonderful. Um, let's let's. Um, but even before we get to the meat of the book, this is a collaboration that you have with your your co-author uh, Donald uh, Orlick. Um, how did you come to write this book together? What's what's the genesis of the the collaboration.
1: Well, as part of my work here at Seton Hall, I'm also the editor of two national education journals, the AASA Journal of Scholarship and Practice, which is the American Association of School Administrators Research Journal. It goes out to all the superintendents and central office people in the United States. About 16,000 folks get that. And it's also an open access journal, so it's read uh, around the world. And I also edit the Kappa Delta Pi record, which is their flagship journal for the Kappa Delta Pi Honor Society. We have a circulation quarterly of about 55,000 copies. And so Don was a person that I had solicited to write an article about uh, common standards, uh, standardized curriculum. And through that collaboration, we found that we were kindred spirits, and we decided maybe we need to expand this topic and write an entire book.
0: Um and and I think what you're suggesting is maybe uh, the audience for this podcast is now quadrupled. Um there's the potential now that many, many more people outside of the field of political science will be listening to this. So that's, that's very exciting and and um it's it's wonderful to sort of see this kind of research that is speaking both to the academy but also has uh an audience and applicability outside of uh, uh the university setting. So um and sort of with that said the book, the book was great. It is it really is a really enjoyable read. It's um as we talked about a little bit before, the um, it's provocative in, in many ways and you take on some um, real important, uh, as you put in your title, some important myths. Um, one of the myths that you address very early on in the book um, in which I wanted to get uh, the conversation started, which is about Sputnik. Um, and maybe even before we get to the meat of the book, let's talk about one of the references you make in Chapter 2, which is to a 1995 song by Bon Jovi and Sambora. I don't know if Bon Jovi and Sambora have been cited in an academic book before. How are they incorporated into this argument you're making about Sputnik?
1: Sure. Bon Jovi and Sambora have a song off their album These Days, and the song is called These Days. And, and in that song, they use a phrase called the uh, vagabond king with a styrofoam crown. And, and, and I heard that phrase, and it struck me that, yes, that, that really sums up Sputnik. In, 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 one, in, in one phrase, because Sputnik is really the genesis uh, of, the, of the school bashing and, and the current school reform movement. Everybody refers to it as if Sputnik was somehow a, a meaningful uh, event in terms of school reform. And let's, let's talk a little bit more about Sputnik, because
0: um, Sputnik is something that comes up a lot, and people refer to the Sputnik moment, um as as a as as many things and it 's used um to serve many purposes. um your argument here is that it 's been misused and and misunderstood and misrepresented um to what end uh, this is really sort of the the historical starting point that that you um begin with or you tell some of the so history of school reform before this but this movement to to describe a educational problem that exists in the country, in many ways, starts at this point. So what does the myth misrepresent about the nature of education in the U.S., and and to, to what end? What has this done for school reform advocates?
1: Well, it, most recently, we've heard President Obama refer to the Sputnik moment in a State of the Union address, and then also his Secretary of Education... Arne Duncan has referred to the Sputnik moment several times now every time they do that they're not doing it to describe public education in a positive way they're using it to describe a crisis that exists and and they're using it as an analogy to a to a perceived former crisis back in the 50s so the way that Sputnik is used today to drive school reform is really to create fear and crisis because I guess some people, like the President or Arne Duncan, simply don't have access to the public records that exist that state otherwise.
0: And part of that public record is, is some of the research that you did, and, and you had access to some, um, I don't know, were they declassified or, or documents, but, but, but related to the way, uh, in part, the Eisenhower administration was trying to um, position this, this issue and, and how they tried to link it to reform? What was the method that you used in, in sort of investigating this?
1: Correct. We, we went into the Library of Congress and then also the Eisenhower Library, and we, we looked for all of the declassified. These used to be top-secret memos about the Sputnik meetings that Eisenhower had with his cabinet. They're, they've now since be, become declassified, you know, because they're older than 50 years. Uh, and we were able to find them in the Library of Congress and, and the Eisenhower Library. They are now public information. And we began, to, we began to read the minutes of the meetings that Eisenhower had with his cabinet following the launch of Sputnik. And we chronicle that in Chapter 2 of the book in terms of how Eisenhower, in the memos, says he was not concerned at all with the quality of public education. He didn't see Sputnik as a crisis in public education at all. In fact, he saw it as a great opportunity to avoid World War III Over space, And in one of the important, in in chapter two, we quote uh, that he said the Soviets actually did us a good turn by opening up space.
0: We'll come back to the sort of the Soviet analogy in a little bit because it's one that you you bring into our current uh, time period. Uh, But before we get to that, I also want to talk about something else that that, um, you address in, in, uh, in chapter two, which is the role that foundations have played in school reform. Uh I had the chance to talk with to Sarah Reckow a couple of weeks ago about her book on foundations and, and current the, the current school reform period. Um, but they've been around for a while. And, and one of the things that, that you say, you say in quite a quite provocative way, um, and just a quote from uh, Chapter 2, uh, you write, the effectiveness of conservative institutions also comes from the fact that they deliberately focus on shaping public policy, making them overtly political bodies. I wonder if you're referring there to the Kelloggs and Fords and Gateses in this case, as, as was the focus of uh, Sarah Reckow's book, or are you referring to a, a different set of foundations? Um, how have foundations played a part in school reform?
1: We, we are, in fact, referring to the, those foundations that you listed, plus foundations like the Walton Foundations, uh, the Walton Foundation, which supports heavily with millions of dollars a year, uh, the charter school creation. Remember, the Walton's own Walmart. Um, so we look at those conservative foundations that are, that are really spearheading and funding some of these latest school reform efforts. And they've become major players in the policymaking arena because what they do is they consistently put out uh, professional-looking reports that are empirically bankrupt. But as you know, sometimes policymakers don't have a lot of time to really look into the methods and look into the, to the data and they just read the conclusions. And I think that's a lot of what's happening today. And there seems to be a preponderance of these foundation reports that come out, uh, constantly and nonstop. Now, you know, and on the other side, there's uh, progressive foundations as well that put out reports, um, to drive their, to drive their, uh, agenda. But as we say in the beginning of the book, you know, one of the lenses we use to look at these at, the, at these reform movements is the lens of liberty and justice for all. So we're not against school reform as long as it forwards the idea, it makes real for all kids the idea of liberty and justice for all. And so when we look at, you know, foundations in general, it seems that this group of conservative foundations isn't really interested in liberty and justice for all. They're interested in liberty and justice for a few. Mm-hmm.
0: And one of the specific um, reports that you refer to in the book is the one that most people know about, which is a nation at risk. And this was the report that was um, written in the mid-1980s. And, you know, other than Sputnik is, is that other kind of major totem that people refer to in education policy as, as the, um, you know, the indicator that, that things weren't all right. But you refer to a nation at risk as an intellectually vapid and data-challenged piece of propaganda. Um, This is a big statement to make. What do you mean by that? What do you mean that a nation at risk was uh, intellectually vapid and and data-challenged?
1: Well, we mean just that. When you read a nation at risk, we challenge anyone to go ahead and find the actual data that support the claims and conclusions that... They draw Because we've tried to do it. Uh, David Berliner tried to do it. The authors of the rebuttal to a nation at risk, the Sandia report, tried to do it. And you just can't find the data that support their conclusions. It's, pro- it's problematic. And so then when you look at the definition of propaganda, and you look at the, the substance of a nation at risk, and you look at how it's since been used, uh, those two things match up pretty closely.
0: Yeah, but most people haven't viewed it in that way. And and in fact, most people have viewed it as as a statement of deep truth. And as a result, we've had, I guess at this point, three decades of school reform that have been driven in part by the assumptions and arguments made in a nation at risk. What's been wrong with approaching school reform uh, with with a... foundation built on a, on a document and an argument made um, in a nation at risk. Are there reforms that have been pushed perhaps wrongly because of that and other reforms maybe that have been pushed to the side because of the assumptions of a nation at risk?
1: Well, I, I, think, I think one of the biggest dangers of approaching reform um, from a basis uh, that contains no evidence is that we're, we're talking about kids here. Children are compelled to attend school. Most of the children in this country attend public school. 49.8 million or so attend public school. They're compelled to do so, but yet they have no voice at the policymaking table. So we rely on the adults, the policymakers, the school administrators, so on and so forth, to make policies that would be in their best interest. So now we run into this problem where policies are being made based on a set of conclusions from a report that contains no evidence. Heath, I sometimes draw this draw this analogy it's like you know would you give your kids medicine that hasn't been validated by the FDA yeah. I, I yeah. probably wouldn't do that but yet what we're doing now is we're we're providing school reform interventions that are built really on a series of like i say frauds myths and lies and and we don't really know the contraindications the negative consequences that could happen. Now let's talk about some of, some of the
0: specifics, some of the specific reforms that, that you you take on and, and, and try to unpack in certain ways, um, which you at, at one point um, summarize them as so as uh, Stalinist inspired. Um, so what goes into this bundle of reforms? You 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 talk about uh, a couple of them, the ones that that are probably familiar at this point to many people, but um, what are the part of the, the current? Uh, what's part of the current landscape of education reform?
1: Sure. When when, when we when we look out at it, the landscape, the biggest thing that we see is the standardization and centralization of decision making and implementation. Now, remember, our country is built; it's founded on local control. The, from the colonial times, we were under a local control form of government, even though we were under British rule the colonists set up their own local governments. And that, so that's, that's part of our culture. And our education system, of course, because education mirrors society, is a, was a local control system. But for the past, I would say since the Reagan administration, so we're looking at about 33 years, there's been a slow erosion of local control. The most, the most recent would be, uh, that everybody would be familiar with, would be the No Child Left Behind Act where the federal government vis-a-vis voluntarily, voluntary participation by the states began to direct the curriculum and assessment practices at the local level. And now we've taken it one step further, uh, bipartisanship under Obama and the, and the Republicans in terms of the Common Core state standards and the new national testing initiative. So for the, really the first time in this country's history, curriculum is being determined by a small group of elites far away from your and my kids' schools. Um, that's, that's problematic culturally, but it's also problematic educationally because actually there's a, there's a good deal of research that shows that when curriculum is developed and customized at the local level, kids do better. So I'm real concerned from a cultural perspective, and just from an evidence-based perspective, that this idea of centralization and standardization is pushing us in the wrong direction.
0: So what do you attribute this to? You'd be hard-pressed to find another major policy area, particularly one that that has such high levels of salience, where there was such agreement and uniformity um, across jurisdictions, across political parties. It's very hard to distinguish between... The Obama administration's education policy and the Bush administration, and it's hard to distinguish between the Bush administration and the Clinton administration, in major ways. Of course, there are some small differences. So to what do you attribute this, this homogeneity in, in thinking about school reform, given in other areas there's such disagreement and difficulty reaching consensus? and education, it seems to be quite natural.
1: Heath, when, when I step back and I, and I zoom out on this topic, I think what you're really seeing is the corporatization and, and privatization, marketization of education. So when we step back even further, I'm going to use a term uh, that, that all of our listeners might not be familiar with, but it, it's, it's the influence of the neoliberal ideology on education. And basically, in layman's terms, it's the it's belief that the market, competition and a free market, will raise quality, increase efficiency, and all things will be good. Um, But the history of neoliberalism in the public sphere is not a good one, and we don't believe that it belongs in public education. But I think that's the driving force, the neoliberal ideology, the market ideology, that's really driving all these reforms now, and that's why it cuts across party lines, because both Democrats and Republicans have embraced markets and competition in one way or another to, to varying degrees, but they've both embraced this idea in terms of improving public services when, when the, the evidence suggests otherwise. And so, uh,
0: given that, and, and I would agree with that, when we actually, I'll, I'll be talking with um, Daniel Sedman-Jones who has this um, very interesting book uh, that just came out called Masters of the Universe about Hayek and Friedman and the development of the neoliberal um, agenda in many ways, and so um, this idea is 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 around in the conversation. But there are other voices out there, um, and and you're very in touch with, with the, the school administration uh, world. Where are the other voices out there for alternative approaches that that depart from the neoliberal philosophy that 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 approach school reform? in a decidedly different way.
1: Well, you see some of the voices, like I said, in the progressive, in the more progressive um, think tanks and the more progressive foundations. Um, But even in in the education world, and we we take this on in Chapter 9, many of our own leaders, both school administrators and especially, especially our leaders of our national organizations, have really drank the Kool-Aid on this one. Um they seem to believe all the myths, frauds and lies and they and they perpetuate them uh you know through through their different conferences, through uh through their administrative preparation programs, so on and so forth. So, you know, th- there are other voices out there, but I think they're not very organized. Uh so they get drowned out by this highly organized neoliberal network.
0: So, are you? Uh, are you? It sounds like you're pretty pessimistic about school reform. Um, how do you? How do you approach this with with your students? Um, talking about you know, sort of the this this um, the power and influence of the neoliberal philosophy on education reform. Um, are there? Uh, are you an optimist on any level about about what's to come? The next uh, uh, iteration of No Child Left Behind, or the next reauthorization of of uh, you know, the major parts of uh, the education policy portfolio,
1: I don't think I'm a pessimist. I think maybe in the foreign policy world they might they might categorize me as a realist, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is this is kind of the way I I think about it. You know, it took us 50 years to get to this place. Okay, it might take us another 50 to get out of here, because I don't think much is going to change until. The larger population sees all the flaws uh, of these current policies and that just takes time because the the things that we're talking about today aren't really the things that that are talked about at PTO meetings or PTA meetings and until they are I don't see much change because that's who's going to change this are the taxpayers the parents who are sending their kids to these schools um, that are really becoming just uh, just watered-down employment training institutions so, I think, I, I think we will overcome this, but I don't think it's going to happen in an election cycle or two. So,
0: what's up next for you? Do you have a, a continuation of this project? Is there a new book uh, that's on the horizon? What's, what's your next research project?
1: Sure, yeah, we've already, I've already been in, in development with the next book. Clearly, from reading this book, you can tell that one of my main concerns is the standardization and centralization of schooling, curriculum, and assessment. So I think down the road here, in the not too distant future, there'll be a book that incorporates the neoliberal influence on standardization and, and, and uh, centralization. So that will undoubtedly focus on the Common Core, the national testing, Race to the Top, the NCLB reauthorization, and we'll we'll kind of take those things apart using a little bit of a different lens and then offer probably an even more robust uh, set of proposals to overcome this because I think really the the time is right for some of us to be putting out some pretty specific proposals on where we can go.
0: Chris is the author of The School Reform Landscape, Fraud, Myth, and Lies. The book was published this year by Roman Littlefield, available at their website. I'm sure that it's also available on Amazon. I've read the book and enjoyed it a lot. I hope that you read it too. Chris, thank you very much for your time today.
1: Thank you, Heath. Enjoyed it. Thank you.